following Christ in a fallen world. First Peter is written to encourage and equip Christians as they experience suffering, as they live under ungodly authority, as they experience persecution for their faith, as they do life together with fellow believers. This letter, we'll, we'll find, is upfront about the difficulties of following Christ in a fallen world. But this letter also gives us hope by reminding us of our inheritance in Christ and teaching us that, that suffering gives us an, a unique opportunities to glorify God and to draw nearer to him. So throughout the letter, the Apostle Peter points us to the grace that God has shown us already in Christ, the grace that he continues to lavish on us every day, and also the grace that has been promised for our future as well. And that's why at the close of his letter, Peter says in chapter 5, verse 12, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So we could have easily entitled our series something about standing firm in the grace of God because that is kind of the theme that Peter gives to his letter. And so my prayer is, may God use this series to help us do just that to stand firm in God's grace as we follow Christ in a fallen world. Today we will begin, we will begin by studying the opening of the letter in verses 1 and 2. And you're going to see that this, this opening is no mere formality. Right? I, I confess, you know, when I send emails or texts, you know, and I... It's often my habit to say, oh, I hope this email finds you well. I hope this text finds you well. But then as I say it, I'm like, no, I, I really do believe that. You know, I, I hope you're doing well. But yet, you know, it is something that I say a lot. <laughs> but this, is, this opening of his letter is just, Peter's not just spouting out cliches here. He's teaching us real doctrinal gold, <laughs> amazing truth. It's this, this opening is going to be loaded with important truths about who we are as believers. So would you stand with me, please, in honor of God's word as I read our text this morning. Again, it'll just be verses 1 and 2. Let's hear God's word. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Please be seated. Who are we as followers of Christ? How did we become Christians? Is our standing in Christ secure? How should we think about this world as we follow Christ? These questions will be addressed in our text already this morning and, and certainly throughout the letter. The, the title of the sermon today is Elect Exiles. Because you probably notice that's how verse 1 refers to believers in Christ, elect exiles. 
That designation is, is loaded again. It is so important for us to consider that designation this morning because it points us to some important truths regarding who we are as Christians, how we became Christians, how we as Christians should live in this world. And so that's my goal today. First, let's, let's uh, as, as the New Testament letters often do, uh, we, we're introduced to the, the human author. We know this is God's word. It's the Holy Spirit um, guiding and, and um, filling Peter to write these words. These are the breathed out words of God as we read in scripture. But Peter begins saying, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So um, we're all familiar with Peter, right? Simon Peter, one of Jesus's 12 disciples. This letter was written sometime early in the AD 60s toward the end of Peter's life, likely when he was in Rome, and, and at the end of the letter in 5.13, he's going to refer to where he's at as Babylon, but, but most scholars think that that's a kind of a code name for Rome. But notice, Peter identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Apostle means one who is sent out. Peter was one of only a dozen men who the risen Lord Jesus Christ personally sent out with his authority to proclaim the good news about Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And the apostles were eyewitnesses of that. And certainly Peter had been an eyewitness to Jesus' life, his miracles, his teaching, his death and resurrection. So as we think about that word apostle, that, that, that title there for Peter, um, let us understand what Ephesians 2 teaches. That Peter and the other apostles' proclamation about Jesus are the foundations of the church. You know, we think especially about that with Peter, you know, but how did he get the name Peter? That wasn't his birth name. Jesus gave him that name because it means rock because he said, upon this rock I will build my church. And what he was referring to was when, by God's grace, by the Spirit, Peter had proclaimed and confessed, kind of speaking for the twelve as well, that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, flesh and blood has not revealed it to you but my Father in heaven. And upon this rock I will build my church. And Ephesians 2 says it's the, the apostles teaching about who Jesus is that is the, the foundation of the church. Jesus, crucified and risen, is the cornerstone. And then the apostles were given that special role of proclaiming that truth. And that's what we have recorded for us in the New Testament. Are the apostles' uh, testimony and proclamation of who Jesus is. Eyewitness testimony. And so all the apostles are sent out with Christ's authority, but I think it's especially cool to, that God inspired and preserved two letters from Simon Peter, all right? Because we all kind of relate to, to Peter because, you know, he was so rash and passionate and, and up and down, right? And, and he was one of Jesus' closest disciples. So again, how cool is it that we have a letter from him Two letters, actually. He had inside access to Jesus' teaching and life. He had personally been transformed by Jesus Christ, as they all had, but in a powerful way. We think of his, his again, his ups and downs, his, his failings, his denial, his, but then his boldness and confidence as, the, as Christ forgave him and, and prayed for him and, and gave him the Spirit there in Acts 2. 
Peter was one of the early leaders of, of the church. He knew firsthand the power of the gospel to save and transform individuals for God's glory. Peter knew the power of the Holy Spirit to give hope in the midst of suffering for the sake of Christ. Again, we're about, we're in the early 60s here, so about 25-ish years since Christ's resurrection. So he's seen the gospel spread. He's seen, he's seen and experienced suffering for the gospel. And it's going to be just a few short years after this letter is penned that Peter himself will be martyred for the gospel. For his faith and, and identification with Christ. So, two points to the sermon today. Um, I believe you have an outline there in the bulletin or a place where you can fill in. The way I organize our time today is as, as we consider elect exiles and, and we see the the, the teaching around that designation. There's two truths that flow out of God's word, that, that flow out of this designation of, of God calling us elect exiles. And so that's how I organized our time this morning. Here's the first one. Christians are the chosen people of God. We'll talk more about that, the chosen people of God. But Christians are the chosen people of God who are in the world, but not of the world. That's what we're going to see in verse 1. Christians are the chosen people of God who are in the world, but not of this world. Notice how he addresses the letter. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So he's writing to Christians who are scattered. That's what dispersion means, and I'll say more about that in a moment too. But they're scattered throughout Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. Some of these Christians were Jews but actually probably most of them were Gentile believers. And again, it's interesting as you, if you look at a map and, and you see, and, and he's writing it more so, more so to northern Asia Minor. Paul ministered a lot in more southern Asia Minor. But it's just amazing to think that in those 25-some years since Christ's resurrection and sending of the Spirit, how the gospel has spread throughout the known world. And there's these believers and, and churches Scattered throughout these regions of the Roman Empire. Praise God for how his word spreads. How his kingdom grows. So these believers are, again we're going to see this throughout the letter, they're suffering. And part of that suffering is living in a fallen world. But, but a part of that suffering is uh, persecution. They were experiencing some I guess you could call it sporadic, mistreatment and abuse as well as ridicule and shame because of their faith in Christ. And so he calls them elect exiles. At this time in the Roman Empire, there wasn't um, empire-wide, state-sanctioned persecution of Christians. That's going to come in, in another 20 or 30 years. But there were, um, again, kind of sporadic or uh, localized persecutions happening, right? The believers were experiencing what Jesus told them they would experience, that don't be surprised if the world hates you. Don't be surprised if the world thinks you're strange because you belong to a new kingdom. You're no longer part of this fallen world. And so they're, they're experiencing that. By and large, they weren't yet losing their lives, but they were being persecuted for their faith in Christ. 
they, they were experiencing and living out the fact that following Christ meant they lived differently from the world around them, and that often brought uh, harsh treatment from, as we're going to see in the letter, governing officials or employers or even unbelieving family members. And so how relevant is that for us today? Right, Because we live in a very similar situation here in America. We enjoy some freedoms, some legal protections to, to worship Christ, praise God, to gather. But we do face a progressively intolerant culture in which we are likely to be discriminated against for identifying with Christ. And it's becoming increasingly difficult to live as a Christian in our day. And we face the reality that following Christ makes us different. We are strangers in a foreign land, as we'll see. And again, think about that word, exiles. They're elect exiles. They've been chosen by God to be in this world, but not of the world. What's, and what's an exile, right? Well, the exiles, we just studied, um, what was it, Zechariah? Zechariah, not too long ago, kind of in the spring written to the exiles who were regathering. Remember, the exiles originally, you know, in, in, in the Old Testament were um, the Jews who had been scattered once, once Babylon ca- uh, conquered Jerusalem, right? Jerusalem was destroyed. The temples destroyed. They were, they were scattered and sent out, and so they were exiles. They were people without a homeland. And that word dispersion, that was a term that was originally used to refer to those Old Testament Jews, to those scattered exiles. But now here, Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is using those same terms to refer not to Jews, not to the Old Testament Jews, but to believers, believers everywhere, Jew and Gentile. You are elect exiles. You are part of the dispersion. And yes, those original... um, readers and, and receivers of this letter, they, they, many of them probably had physically been dispersed. And it was interesting to read some of the theories about that. You know, um, I forget, I didn't write down what the, who the Roman leader was at the time, but um, one of his methods was, you know, colonizing, right? Such a loaded word nowadays, right? But colonizing. And he had done that, you know, as, as the Roman Empire had, had expanded, he would take people and say, all right, we're going to transplant you over there. And, you know, you know, he had his reasons for doing that. And so maybe that's how some of them have gotten scattered. But again, there's the truth behind these words is not just that you're physically scattered per se, but it's who you are in relation to this world. This world is not your home anymore. And that is true of us today. We are called to be in this world, but not of this world. You say, we, we say that all the time. Where is that said in the Bible? Well, it's those same terms are used by our Lord Jesus Christ in his high priestly prayer. Listen to how Jesus prayed in John 17, verse 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. 
As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. You see, that's Jesus praying. That's what he's saying about his people. He's saying, I don't belong to this fallen world either. And so those who identify with me are also not going to belong to this world. And then just a couple of chapters earlier, he had said to the disciples in the upper room, John 15, 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I have said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And again, Peter's hearers were experiencing that many of us experience that but we need to be reminded of this truth we need to be aware of this reality not so we go around you know with a martyr complex or anything but we should expect to face persecution from this world we should expect to not be accepted and fit in in this world and that means in our unbelieving families right that means in our workplaces that means on our teams we want to show the love of Christ. We want to, as far as it depends on us, live at peace with all men. But we can't control how they're going to view us or accept us. And at times, loved ones, know that this world will ridicule us for our devotion to Christ. And probably, you know, when I was growing up, it probably was more just like people thinking, wow, that's kind of weird, right? Why do you spend so much time at church? And, oh, you can't do this and you can't do that. Blah, blah. I mean, again, they had a very wrong view of Christianity but I'm but still right it was more ridicule that's silly but now I think a lot of the tone has shifted there's still ridicule to be sure but now the world will decry us as intolerant for declaring that Jesus is the only way to God the world will label us as hateful and even dangerous the way they twist things right dangerous for holding to biblical values and for obeying Christ's commands and for, you know, proclaiming the gospel and inviting others to follow Christ. That can be viewed as hate speech. That can be, that can be dangerous. We need to be aware of that. Again, as I know many of you are living it. And that reality poses some temptations for believers. Because that is the case, that we'll be ridiculed or labeled different ways or not accepted, we may be tempted to compromise what we believe in order to gain acceptance from the world. Right? I mean, we all like to be liked, right? We all like to be accepted. And so you may face that temptation to to compromise, to soft-pedal what the Bible really says in some attempt to get the world to like you. Oh, don't do that, loved ones. Don't do that. Young people, you especially, you will be tempted to compromise what the Bible teaches in order to fit in with the world. May God give you the grace not to do that. If, if following Christ brings shame, if it brings ridicule, if it brings uh, you know, being called out by a professor, if it means getting marked down on, on papers and tests, rejoice that you, you 
are sharing in the sufferings of Christ in some small way. It is not worth it to compromise the truth in order to be accepted by a fallen, lost world. Know that you have a Father, a Heavenly Father, who loves you. You have a church family. We are pilgrims together, strangers together in this land. And praise God that He doesn't leave us isolated, right? So those are some temptations. Here's another temptation that, again, just understanding who we are as as Christians, that we're elect exiles, part of the dispersion. See, part of that being exiles was, uh, yeah, you, you didn't really have a homeland, right? But you were looking forward to a homeland whose maker and architect is God. So unless we intentionally follow Christ, and, and by that I mean intentionally, right? The, we are going to blindly, unknowingly adopt the values and the pursuits of this world. That's just a reality of, of where we live now as exiles, as pilgrims in this world. We have to, by God's grace, daily, intentionally follow Christ, using the means of grace to follow Christ, to to remind ourselves who we are, to intentionally walk by faith and not by sight. Because if we just kind of go in cruise control, we're going to naturally just gravitate toward the values of, and pursuits of this fallen world. Because this world is opposed to Christ. Again, whether that be you know, violently, as, as we prayed about earlier, or whether it just be in distractions and in other pursuits... This world is about the kingdom of darkness. This world is about um, satisfying the sinful self. And so that's what the world caters to, right? It, the whole economy, the whole, the whole system of the world is catered to getting people to buy into that, which we, by nature, have an inclination to buy into that already. And so we have to be so aware and we have to remind ourselves, Christ has chosen me out of this world. I'm a citizen of heaven, Philippians 3.20 says. This world is not my home, this fallen world. Praise God, he's, Christ is going to return. He's going to remake this world. Well, there'll be a new heavens, a new earth. We'll get to enjoy it with no, no sin, no fallenness. But right now, this world is not my home. And so we have to be so intentional about that. Another reality that flows out of this truth that God chose us to be in the world but not of the world, and this is kind of related, but we cannot look to this fallen world to be our paradise. We cannot look to this fallen world to be our paradise. Because we grieve at the moral decay of our day, It can be tempting, especially for those of us, and I'm including myself now, us who are older, right? We can look back on this with nostalgia on a golden age of yesterday when things were much better. But no matter how golden that age might have been, and oftentimes our view of that is kind of skewed. But no matter how golden that age might have been, ever since Genesis 3, this world has been under the curse of sin. And so, yes, there's, there's been generations in certain pockets still where there's a cultural Christianity, where there's a Bible belt, where there's good morals and things like that. And, and praise God for preservation of, 
you know, things that would uh, align with his word. But cultural Christianity is not the kingdom of God. <laughs> and cultural Christianity carries its, its own dangers, right, of, of, of people being deceived, thinking they're Christians when they're not. And they're still pursuing a kingdom of self and not the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of Christ. Many people today, and, and again, it, it's understandable in one sense, but we have to guard against it. Many people today search for a utopia, a conservative nirvana, where everything will be better. But we will not find paradise here in this fallen world. No matter how conservative this fallen world is, is still fundamentally opposed to and distinct from the kingdom of God. And again, God calls people different places. That's fine. But may we just do it with our eyes wide open, knowing that I'm still going to have to... Be in I'm still going to be a stranger in this world. I'm still going to have to intentionally follow Christ. And many of you know friends and family that have moved to conservative nirvanas. And if they're honest, they, you know, after being there a few years, they realize, you know what? There's still the same kind of challenges here. Maybe they look a little different or whatever, because we always bring our sin with us, right? <laughs> and because this is a fallen world. So these are things we need to keep in mind, right? But again, exiles points to the fact that this world is not our home. We are awaiting a heavenly home where we will enjoy the unrivaled rule and, and glory of Jesus Christ. Listen to Hebrews chapter 11, that, that section of the, or that chapter of the Hall of Fame of Faith, right? Listen to verses 13 through 16. He's already, you know, he's right in the middle. He's already been talking about the saints of old. These all died in faith not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. That's, that's believers of all ages, right? Strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. The same is true of us today. We're strangers and exiles. But praise God, we have a, a heavenly city awaiting us. So be encouraged as you follow Christ in this fallen world. Know that you are the chosen people of God Remember, Jesus said, I've chosen you out of this world. And that means you're going to face suffering and persecution, but that's because you're identifying with me. They're ultimately rejecting me, Jesus says. But you have a heavenly home with me forever. So that's the first truth. The second one, again, we see it in that designation, elect exiles, and then verse 2 just explodes it in beautiful ways. Christians are the chosen people of God who are saved by the triune God. Right? Who are we as Christians? How did we become Christians? What does, that, what does that look like? What does that mean? We are the chosen people of God who have been saved by the triune God. Again, that, that theme of chosen flows throughout these two verses. We've already had election, elect exiles, 
And now look at verse 2. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. You see, he's already said you, you believers are elect exiles. Elect means to be chosen. It means God chose to save you. Out of humanity, God chose certain individuals to be saved through no merit of their own, purely by his grace. And now what verse 2 is, 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 is describing, is, is, is developing, is what is the basis of our election? Why did God choose us? Did he look ahead and say, oh, so-and-so is going to believe in me? Or, man, you know what, they have a lot to offer. I, I want them, I need them in my kingdom, right? No. What was the basis for our salvation, for our election? Well, he says in verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. It wasn't any quality we possess. It wasn't any intrinsic value in us. It was according to the foreknowledge of God. Well, what is foreknowledge? Again, it does not mean that God looks ahead and chooses those who are going to respond to him in faith. That's not what the word means. What does it mean to foreknow, for God to foreknow us? It means this. That before we were ever born, go back further, before the world was ever created, God knew us and God loved us. I mean, these are some deep, deep truths and beautiful truths and waters that I'm just taking the plunge in, but, you know, we're, we're all trying to process this ourselves too it's amazing before the foundation of the world Ephesians 1 4 says God chose to set his love on us he chose that we would be saved all of that is in those words election and foreknowledge when you know someone there's an intimacy there there's a love there there's a covenant there Before the foundation of the world, God chose to set his love on us, choosing to save us at the appointed time. And then he ordered events to bring that about. So within that that framework of foreknowledge, and, and if you look at scripture, you're going to see these things linked oftentimes. Like I said, you have covenant love. You have sovereign ordering. It all flows out of that word, that term, foreknowledge. Here's how one uh, commentator put it. Foreknowledge indicates that God freely chose to set his covenant love on certain individuals before the creation of the world and foreordained that those whom he foreknew would come to salvation at the appointed time. I mean, it's amazing to consider That God, in his, again, amazing grace, decided to set his love on us and save us through his son, Jesus Christ. The the triune God, as we're going to see, we're all involved in this. This was a a plan they all uh, embraced, agreed to, before even the creation of the world. It was planned and set in motion. And God purposed all things you know the 
the covenants, the, the raising up the nation of Israel, the, the promises, the, the right time to send the Messiah, his own son, and then the right time to send the Spirit and intersect our lives with the gospel and give us the new birth. All of that flows out of this fact that God set his love on us to save us. It's humbling. It's humbling. It should cause us to be in awe. You know, when we sing about holy, holy, Lord God Almighty. Holiness is not just free from evil, even though it is that. But holiness means set apart, distinct, unique, nothing else like it in the world. There's no other love and grace like this. We, why are you a believer? Why am I a believer? Why, why do we have all of the promises? Why do we have eternal life? Why do we have forgiveness of sin? Why do we have in the inheritance that Peter's going to talk about in the next few verses to look forward to? Knowing that, yes, this brief time on this world is going to be frustrating. It's going to be difficult, sometimes extremely difficult. But knowing that we have a heavenly future for all eternity... Why do we have all of that? It's by God's grace. We were no better than any other person. We did not repent and believe because we were smarter than those who don't. Left to ourselves, we would still be lost. Left to ourselves, we would still be rejecting Christ. Left to ourselves, we would still be knee-deep, or neck-deep, I should say, in the pursuits of this world. Enslaved. God, right? But God, as we see throughout the New Testament, chose to save us. He chose to show us grace. He set his love on us. Many will say in eternity past, I'll say at least we know before the creation of the world. He set his love on us. Delighting to save us and adopt us and lavish the blessings of his grace on us for all eternity. Moving forward And so Peter is encouraging, and I pray you're encouraged, right? Peter's encouraging the the Christians in Asia Minor with this truth that God has elected them. And so, yes, they're, they're experiencing suffering. Again, that's to be expected because of their identity with Christ. But that suffering doesn't mean that God has forgotten them or that God is no longer interested or caring for them. No, far from it. God has loved them since before the creation of the world, God has chosen to save them by his grace, and he's orchestrated all these events, most notably the sending and giving up of his precious son. And so they are secure, they are loved, even though they're experiencing difficulties. He has planned and brought about their salvation, and he will see them through. Likewise, loved ones, the truth of God's election leaves us in awe of God's grace, and it should be and is so encouraging to us as we face trials, as we face suffering. Almighty God has known us intimately before the creation of the world, and he chose to save us, and we belong to him. And so as Paul rejoices in in Romans 8, no amount of suffering, no amount of persecution can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I'll try to pick it up. Um, Verse 2. 
It continues to explain our great salvation. Not only was it according to the foreknowledge of God, but notice it was in the sanctification of the Spirit. Sanctification means to be set apart. Oftentimes in Scripture, when we read of sanctification, it refers to the ongoing process of being set apart, the ongoing process of becoming more and more like Christ. But it can also, and here this is how it's being used, it can also um, refer to that initial being set apart. Matter of fact, that's how Peter's going to use it throughout his letter. It being initially set apart by the Holy Spirit. Notice, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Again, when we think of obedience, we tend to think of ongoing uh, progressive sanctification. But what we're going to see, Peter uses obedience to refer to that initial obedience to the gospel. You say, what do you mean? Obedience to the gospel. What is the gospel? What does the word gospel mean? It means good news, right? The gospel is news. It's the good news that Jesus Christ lived, died, and rose again in the place of sinners. It's the good news that Jesus Christ has defeated sin, death, and evil and now reigns as Lord of all. It's the good news that Jesus is coming again to gather his own, to judge his enemies, to eradicate evil once and for all. And to usher in the eternal age. It's good news. And until it's news that demands a response. And Jesus tells us what that response should be. Until he returns, he commands all people everywhere to repent of their sins. And to humbly embrace him as Savior and Lord. And then the good news is that to all who do that, to all who turn from their sins and turn to Christ, he graciously forgives and, and grants entrance into his eternal kingdom. So you see, the gospel is more than just an offer. The gospel is a proclamation of news, good news, that Jesus is Lord and Savior. And this proclamation calls for a response to repent of your rebellion to King Jesus and to humbly embrace him as Savior and King. And so what verse 2 is saying is that by God's grace, they have done that. By the Spirit's enabling, they have done that. Because God set his love on them before the creation of the world, at the proper time, he sent his Spirit to set them apart and give them the new birth so that they would turn from their sins and by faith embrace Jesus as Savior and Lord. They had obeyed the gospel. And so I ask you, any of you, but especially young people, have you obeyed the gospel? I mean, you hear it time and time again. Maybe maybe you don't want to be here. Maybe your family makes you come. But you're hearing the good news that Jesus has died and risen again, that he's Savior and Lord, that he's reigning. Have you responded to that? Have you obeyed the fact that Jesus is King? Again, we all by nature want to be our own kings. But we need to respond and and repent of that rebellion and say, Jesus, you are Lord. And with your help, I want to follow you as my king. I pray that everyone listening will do that by God's enabling. For obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. When you see that term sprinkling with his blood, you should automatically think covenant. A covenant's being made or he's referring to a covenant, right? 
It points us back to when God entered into a covenant with the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai. We know that covenants were formed through the shedding of blood. And in Exodus 24, God told Moses to set Israel apart as his covenant people by sprinkling the blood of sacrifice animals on them. And so here in verse 2, Peter's encouraging Christians by reminding us that we are the new covenant people of God. By a sacrificial death on the cross, Jesus Christ has established the new and better and eternal covenant. This new covenant promised an intimate relationship with God. Think back to the, uh, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel, uh, Hebrews 8, then quotes those passages. What did the new covenant promise? An intimate relationship with God. They will all know me. I will remember their sins no more. It promised the forgiveness of sins. It promised the indwelling spirit. It promised new hearts that were empowered to obey God. And so he's saying that's what you have. That's who you are as Christians. You've been chosen to be saved. You've been, God has set his love on you. The spirit has set you apart. Christ has died for you and, cre- and, and uh, secured for you the blessings of this new covenant. So I hope what you see and are encouraged by in verse 2 is we see every member of the Trinity involved in bringing about our salvation. Isn't that cool? Isn't that amazing? The Father planned our salvation. The Son purchased our salvation. And the Spirit applied that salvation to our lives through the new birth. So be encouraged today, believer. Every member of the Godhead was actively and lovingly involved in saving you. Praise God. And again, this should just give encouragement, should give security. Since God has chosen us before the foundation of the world, since God has sent his son to die for us, since God gave us his Holy Spirit to regenerate us and to indwell us, we know he will not let us go. He will see us through times of difficulty. And so that's what Peter is setting up for his readers. And then he closes the the opening with a benediction. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. And that's what he's been uh, proclaiming and reveling in, isn't it? The grace of God that he's shown us. The peace that that brings with us. That we're reconciled to the Father. And we know we're loved and secure. And so he just wants them to know that truth again and again, to preach the gospel to themselves again and again, no matter what difficulties they're going through, no matter how uh, painful it is at the time, remember, you are loved, you are secure, you are the chosen people of God. And so may grace and peace multiplied, be multiplied to you. And so loved ones, please, by God's enabling, stand firm in this grace. Preach the gospel to yourself. Draw near to God in worship and in dependence. And as you stand firm in that grace, God will enable you to endure suffering and he will even give you peace in the midst of the pain as you await the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, again, we, we stand in awe at, at your love and at your grace. And, and it's hard for our minds to even wrap around how you how you chose us before the foundation of the world through no merit of our own. All that we have is, a, is because of your grace. And we praise you and thank you for the security that is, is there. We did nothing to earn this. We, can do, we, can, we don't have to do anything to secure it or fear losing it. 
And so may that truth just resonate in the hearts of your people this, this week and help us to, to uh, live out the gospel, enjoy our walk with you, even uh, enduring any suffering or ridicule, but may you use that to glorify your name and point others to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If I could have the men come forward who are going to um, help serve the Lord's Supper, please.